Well, again, thankful to be here. Um, thankful to be here this morning and thankful to be able to uh, sing with you and then now open the Word with you. So we're going to return back to the, uh, the book of Habakkuk. To the book of Habakkuk. We're, gonna, we're, we're thinking about trusting God. And so last night we, we talked about lament, but really we talked about this business of seeking to draw close to God. You know, when we go through difficult times, when we go through different crises in life, we have uh, a hard time getting oriented, especially if it's uh, something that's more severe than what we're used to. But one of the things that Scripture lays out consistently, and it's a principle that you can take with you, is that every single crisis you will ever face is an opportunity to draw close to God. Now, there may be other factors in there. There may, be, there may be other things that need to be dealt with, but every single crisis, every single difficulty that you ever face will be an opportunity for you to draw close to God. Now, that is the most important thing I will say this weekend. Um, and sometimes we think, well, give me a little more clarity. You know, that sounds nice. It sounds right. But give me a little more. Well, there is no more than that. Now, we can talk more practically about how to do that, and, and hopefully we will. But Jesus tells us in John 17, verse 3, that this is eternal life, that we would know Him. Right? That we would know Him, that we would know the Lord. And one of the things that hinders us so greatly, and we may as well admit that we're hindered in this area, it's not a... Uh, it's not a slight. We live in a fallen world and we wrestle against the flesh. And so whether we like it or not, we are all just limping along. Um, God is not going to say when we get to heaven, hey, Lewis, come set up here and let me tell all the folks about how you did it. That's just not going to happen. It's not going to happen with you either. God is not impressed with us, but he loves us. Right, And he cares for us, and he's seeking to draw us closer to him. So this is eternal life that we would know him. Well, you know, growing up, I grew up with two brothers, and uh, our thing growing up was basketball. We, we loved to play basketball outside in the yard, and, and we collected basketball cards and wasted a ton of money on them, just knowing that, you know, that investment was really going to pay off in the end, and, uh, and they didn't. Uh, but... One of the things that we used to do is, is we would get those basketball cards, and, and uh, if you ever collected those or even saw those, you know you could turn on the back and see all the stats, right? So if you had a Michael Jordan card, you could turn on the back and see all these different statistics about his performance, and you might even read a little bit and uh, something about his career, and in, at some level, you would know something about Michael Jordan. Well, I'm afraid sometimes we use Scripture the same way we use those basketball cards, because I can know all the stats that were out there on Michael Jordan, but the fact was I had no idea who Michael Jordan was. You understand what I mean when I say that? God is not just interested in, in imparting um, abstract knowledge about his character to you, God is interested in imparting that knowledge about his character so that it might draw you closer to him and you might know him. 
So, so our real difficulty is we tend to relate to God more as a concept than a person. But He is a person. He's a person to be lived with. He's a person to be communed with, to have fellowship with. And so just as it would be ridiculous for me to tell you all kinds of factual information about my wife, and yet at the end comes to find out that we never really interact, it's just as ridiculous for us. And when I say that again, this is a real struggle we all face. It's just as ridiculous for us to think that we're growing in maturity simply because we're accumulating factual knowledge and we're rearranging some cognitions about what we know about what Scripture says about God, but that information never really leads us into true communion with the Lord and true fellowship with the Lord. And so that's why sometimes when we make statements like the most important thing that I'll say this weekend is that every trial and every crisis and there's an opportunity to draw close to God can leave us scratching our heads thinking, well, surely there's more to it than that. No, there's not. There's not. We're going to spend all eternity getting to know God. You know, we'll never exhaust that. And, and part of the beauty of salvation is we get to start now. So, last night, today, tomorrow, we're thinking about trying to build some categories into our minds and in our hearts of what does it mean for us to trust the Lord, trusting God in confusing times. So we said last night, lament, crying out to God. We're going to start today in chapter 2. So I'm picking and choosing here through this book, but one of the important principles, I think, of Scripture, I'm just going to gloss over it, because after Habakkuk comes to the Lord and says, Lord, what is going on? How long and why? God says, well, Habakkuk, I'm going to do something, and I'm going to do something that you're not going to believe, even after I tell you what I'm going to do. And if you're familiar with the book, you know what that is. He says, I am raising up the Chaldeans, and I'm going to use them as, my, as the instrument of my wrath. So essentially, he says, if you think it's bad now, just wait. It's about to get worse. Now, this is a strange thing, because at this point in history, the Chaldeans, or the the Babylonians, uh, they were not even close to the world power that they would become. Um, Derek Thomas says that it would be about like in our modern day, if God were to come and tell us, just wait, because I'm raising up Venezuela to come and to destroy the U.S., and we would think, what? Venezuela, they're nothing. That's what's happening here. And so, Habakkuk's answer to that in verse 12 is to kind of recount and recall God's character, what he knows about the Lord. And then we make our way to verse, I'm sorry, we make our way to uh, chapter 2. And so we're going to read the first four verses here. Habakkuk says, I will stand upon my watch and set me upon the tower. I will watch to see what he will say unto me and what I shall answer when I am reproved. 
And the Lord answered me and said, Write the vision and make it plain upon the tables, that he may run that readeth. For the vision is yet for an appointed time, but at the end it shall speak and not lie. Though it tarry, wait for it, because it will surely come. It will not tarry. Behold, his soul which is lifted up is not upright in him, but the just shall live by his faith. So Habakkuk here is struggling with the Lord. Essentially, when God says, I'm doing something you're not going to believe, Habakkuk says, yeah, you're right, I can't believe this. And then Habakkuk says, I'm going to wait, I'm going to watch, I'm going to see what the Lord will respond, what He'll say. And God says, you can go ahead and write this down because it's going to happen. You're going to have to wait for it. But just because you have to wait doesn't mean it's not going to happen. And then he gets this passage, Habakkuk 2.4, which is really the central passage to this book. And you'll see that passage quoted a couple of times in the New Testament. The just shall live by faith. He says, Habakkuk, you're going to be watching for a while. And it's going to seem like nothing's going on. But keep watching. Keep waiting. So as we try to build categories into our hearts and mind on what does it mean to trust the Lord, one of the things that we have to um, understand, and this is a common theme we mentioned last night, and we'll continue to mention it, these themes that come up in the Psalms, because Habakkuk has a lot in common with the Psalms. As a matter of fact, almost all the minor prophets have a lot in common with the Psalms. And, And it's this waiting on the Lord. Waiting on the Lord. It's this reality that God's timing is not always our timing. And while that makes for a good sermon, that's a very difficult pill to swallow when it hits home, doesn't it? Or isn't it? So what does it mean? What does it mean to wait on the Lord? Well, first of all, it's worth noting that there is a big difference in simply waiting and then waiting on the Lord. When we think about waiting, that's something that's passive. Sometimes people think they're waiting on the Lord, or they think that waiting on the Lord means putting your entire life on hold, killing time until an issue or a circumstance is answered. That's not what waiting on the Lord means. Sometimes when people say they're waiting on the Lord, their entire life is just paralyzed. And everything revolves around one answer to one issue. And nothing else is happening. But waiting on the Lord is actively seeking the Lord's will in a particular area of life, while at the same time, Serving the Lord in obedience in all other areas of life where we've been given light. Now let me say this. I I use a lot of notes and a lot of um, bigger sentences. And if you're a note taker, maybe you can keep up. But people at home sometimes can't and get frustrated. So if you're trying to take notes and I'm moving too fast and you like to see those notes, if you'll just let me know, I'll email you my outlines and, and it'll maybe save you some frustration if you're trying to write these things down. 
But I will say it again. Waiting on the Lord is actively seeking the Lord's will in a particular area of life. Typically, we're not waiting on the Lord in every single area. We have one crisis. We have one area where we're just not sure what is it that God would have me to do. But while we're waiting in that area... We are serving God in obedience in all other areas of life where we have been given light. And so, we can wait on the Lord in different ways. And the Lord gives us answers in different ways. I'm going to mention three. One, God can answer, bring bring answers, I guess would be the better way to say that, uh, through His providential dealings with us, through Scripture, or a combination of both. Okay? The Lord can, can make things known to us in different ways. Now, the one that I'm kind of hesitant to, to really focus on is the way that God brings provident, His answers through providential dealings. And it's not because I don't believe in God's providence. It's because I believe that or at least it's been my experience, that a lot of times people have just a real hokey idea of what it means to wait on God and for God to give them an answer. What I mean by that is, this is just an example I'm pulling out of thin air. Somebody's trying to figure out where they need to go to college. And they, you know, you live in Georgia, and uh, you've got three or four different options, and you end up in uh, New York City, if there's a college there, New York City, and you end up meeting some guy that you figure out is your uncle's cousin's brother's sister. And you say, well, good grief, it's God's providence. You know, what's the chances? Well, they're not that far off, you know, that's a pretty disconnected deal. But we can do that. We can make things out of of just nothing. Or... um, Well, I could spend all morning doing that, but you know what I mean. Coming up with, obviously we believe God's providence is involved and His decrees and all those things are involved in every minute detail. But sometimes people try to read God's providence about like somebody reads tarot cards. You know, the secret things belong to God. And you want to know something about God? He knows how to keep a secret. Okay, He knows how to do that. The things that are revealed are given to us and to our children, Deuteronomy 29, 29, that we may do them. And so there are times where God can come to us in special ways, and I'm going to give you an example of how he did that with me. Um, but I would say the norm and really what needs to confirm that is going to be Scripture. You need really both guardrails when you're dealing with that. So when we're waiting on God to see what God wants us to do. Several years ago, um, I was uh, thinking about, really working toward, um, opening up an an office in North Mississippi to to offer biblical counseling to the community. And I had met a guy in Jackson, Mississippi, who was looking for someone to, uh, to manage the North Mississippi branch of what he was doing with that. And I thought, well, okay, I'm, 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 I've been thinking about this, looking for this. Brother Isaac was still at Ripley, so there was not really any sort of a chance that I was going to be able to go full-time there. I was not 
uh, entirely content where I was as far as my job went. It was fine, but I wanted to, uh, I felt like that, that the Lord wanted me to do more in this area. And so we met up and we began to hash things out and through a series of months, we were developing a plan. One of my first go-tos was just to figure out what did Abby think about this, and she was 100% behind it, so that was, you know, you check that box, that's, that's good. Um, talking to Isaac about it, he, was, he thought it was a good thing, so check that box, that was good. The people who were around me thought this is probably a good thing, no red flags. Well... Then I started realizing that this was going to be more than just opening up an office and offering services. This was more of a, of a business endeavor. There were going to be partnerships that had to be made. There were going to be various other things that, if I was going to make a living, were going to have to happen. But I thought, no big deal, I can do that. Well, more and more and more, I started thinking, this might not be what I need to be doing. It's taken a tremendous amount of time. I want to be a pastor, but I also want to do this. I'm not so sure that I can do both. And then one week, um, I was scheduled to preach. Isaac was going to be out of town, um, so I was scheduled to preach both services. And I had my week laid out. I'm a routine kind of a guy, um, which we were talking about control last night. That just means I like to control areas of life that I can't control. And my routine was not going as planned. I was supposed to carve out this amount of time to, to go and to study and to get my sermon ready, and that didn't work, and that, the other one didn't work, and this didn't work. And so, so finally... Saturday came along, and I, I almost never do sermon prep on Saturday. Um, I, I like to keep that day open for my family. But I told Abby, I've, I've got to go to the church and, and get my sermon ready. I, I just, I'm not ready. So she said, okay. So I got up Saturday morning, flipped on the faucet to brush my teeth, and saw the water go from a steady stream to nothing. Well, we have a well, and I knew exactly what happened. Uh, a pipe had busted. And so I went outside, chiseled up a little bit of concrete, tried to get enough room to cut the pipe, and after about four trips to Lowe's, there I was, splashing around in water, trying to get this well pump fixed. And the thought came to my mind, if you are this busy now, and if your time is crunched now, trying to prepare to get this thing off the ground and running, what do you think it's going to be like whenever you jump in with both feet? And in that second, I knew, I can't do this. I can't do this. I loved it. Truth is, I cried like a baby the rest of the day. Isaac got, uh, Abby got worried and called Isaac and said, you need to come talk to Lewis. I think something's wrong. <laughs> I'm not much of an emotional guy, but I was that day. But God providentially, as I was trying to discern what it was that I should have done and should be doing, made it tremendously clear to me through just a series of what might look like just random events. There was also another time, and this is an example of Scripture, when it happens with Scripture. Some of you are familiar with 
some of the things that the Lord has done in mine and Abby's life over the last several years, 10 years or so. One of the most difficult seasons in our life was after um, Abby had a stillbirth. Our son Abel died at 22 weeks, and we just went through a tremendously difficult time. Well, at the same time, I was very, very busy in the counseling ministry. So the way my schedule looked was that I would go to work from 8 to uh, 4, and then I would go to the church, and I was helping, I don't know how many, five, six families throughout the week. And it very quickly became more than I could handle and really more than my family needed to, uh, to endure. And I was just thinking to myself, Lord, and praying, Lord, here I am. I'm, I'm trying to serve you. It's not like I'm, I'm, uh, I'm off doing something for self-gain. I'm, I'm helping these people for free. They're not paying me anything, so it's not like it was a part-time job. But I am overwhelmed, and I don't know what to do, and my family needs me, and I'm in the middle of this, uh, these uh, counseling relationships, and my wife needs me. And I remember driving to school one morning, praying that, overwhelmed, just, again, probably the most difficult season in our family's life, praying, Lord, what do I do? What do I do? And then just like that, the verse popped into my mind, herein is love that a man lay down his life for his friend. And I knew what I needed to do. Now, I loved counseling. But it was time for me to lay that aside for a little bit because my friend was at home and she needed me. My kids were at home and they needed me. And so I knew the Lord blessed me in that moment. He used that passage that I had not even been thinking about or reading to confirm in my mind and in my heart that this is what I need to do for this season. Now here's the point. It is, we could go around the room and you could tell different stories about this kind of a thing. It is a wonderful thing to be able to have a confident grasp on what it is that God wants you to do and when He wants you to do it. It's the things that testimonies are made of. It's a horrible thing to not know, isn't it? It's miserable to not know. And yet, as we live life, Seeking to walk with the Lord, we know this for sure. There are going to be seasons in life where you're called to wait. You're called to wait on the Lord. And so, I want to talk about different aspects of what that means and what that requires. So, whenever we're waiting for God's providential answer in a matter... That would go along some of the lines of praying for loved ones to be healed from sickness and disease. Things that are just completely outside of our control. When we get in those kinds of scenarios, that's all we can do is wait, right? You can't fast forward God. Maybe praying for the Lord to open up doors of opportunity. Whether that's a ministry opportunity, whether that's a job opportunity. Maybe praying for a spouse, for your children, for a pastor. We could go on and on. 
When we're talking about praying for scenarios that are outside of the realm of our responsibility, the only thing we can do is wait on God. Think about this, well, I say particularly, it could hit any of these, but you think about this with children. You know, whenever you're newly married and you're thinking about the prospects of children, you are an expert, aren't you? If the folks at your church would listen to you, but then you have kids and you realize this little person has his or her own heart and his or her own mind. And while I might be able to manage that behavior through discipline, I cannot control this child. When they get older, they're going to make choices that I can't manage. They're going to do things that I can't control. And while it crushes our hearts... Many times we're just called to wait on the Lord because the Lord's the only one who can intervene, the only one who can change. Trusting in God sometimes requires us to wait. Second, we're waiting for God's will to be revealed or as we're waiting for God's will to be revealed, many times He does this through prayerfully searching the Scriptures. Okay, I can't emphasize this enough. There's, there's, we mentioned it earlier, but there's two realms of responsibility as far as our, our walk with the Lord. Just basics about life. You know, there's two things in life that you will never, ever be able to control. People and circumstances. You'll never be able to control people and circumstances. One thing in life you'll always be able to control, how you respond to people and circumstances. Okay, so, so when we're thinking about our response and we're thinking about our responsibility as we're trying to discern God's will, I'm afraid, and we'll talk about this as we get closer to the end of the message, but I'm afraid many times the number one indicator that we use is what will get the pressure off the fastest? How can I go back to normal the fastest? And that's, that's not always God's way. Because God has bigger agendas in mind. I'll give you an example. Um, it's just a personal example here. It's, it's not good, bad. It just is what it is. Uh, as far as my personality goes, if you know me, and Abby will tell you this, uh, it's, it's pretty much like this. Okay? Now, that's not bragging, because what that means is I usually don't get down, but I usually don't get excited about stuff either. Abby says, you never get excited about anything. I said, I can't help it. You know, I just, I don't get excited. I'm sorry. I'm typically not a very emotional person. And so what do you do with a guy who pretty much exists like this? I mean, you know, when I wake up in the morning, I'm about like I am right now. So what do you do with a guy that's always like this, who wants to be in ministry and and minister to people who are a lot like this? Okay. Well, the easy thing you could do for a guy like that is give him a book and say, read it. Sure, I can do that. I can do that.
But that's not how God works. He's not a one-dimensional God, and He's not interested in creating one-dimensional people. The truth is, a guy who's like this, who knows what the book says, still has to know how to minister to somebody who's like this. So what do you do? Well, now when I say I'm not emotional, typically I, I, I know very little about anxiety. I know very little about fear. I know very little about being depressed. I know very little about any of that kind of stuff. And again, that's not right, wrong. That's just what it is. That's not bragging. That's just what it is. But I can tell you this, I know something about those things. You know what you do with a guy that's like this most of the time? You give him a baby that you think, that he thinks, is going to die. You teach him what a broken heart is like. You teach him what it's like to be terrified whenever he puts his three-month-old in the hands of a surgeon who's going to rip his chest open and try to put back together a heart that has four holes in it. You put him in circumstances and situations where he realizes, I'm not in control and the only thing I can do is come to God for help. You know, it's kind of along the lines of, what good is a God who's full of grace if you never think you need grace? What good is a God who's full of mercy if you never think you need it? So part of what God's doing in our lives whenever He's teaching us to trust Him, He's teaching us to draw near to Him, He's teaching us to wait on Him, is, brothers and sisters, He is creating in us an appetite for what He has so that we will come to Him for it again and again and again and again, so that we will be more reliant on Him as we need those things. It's good to be a disciplined person. But when we're talking about our relationship with God, discipline that exists outside of an urgent necessity is not really a real relationship. We need God. We need Him. It's not just that it would be a nice thing for us to grow in the exercise of pretending like we're talking to Him. We need Him. God puts us in situations and circumstances that brings that out. So let's go to Psalm 119 for a minute. Psalm 119. A lot of times this psalm is known as the the psalm that is uh, all about the Bible, all about Scripture. There's some truth to that, but the, the greater reality is Psalm 119 is not a psalm that's primarily supposed to teach you about the Bible. Psalm 119 is the longest I-to-you conversation in Scripture where a man is speaking with God and he's communing with God and Scripture is the basis. Okay? This is interaction going on here. This is not a monologue about Scripture. This is the writer coming to God, communing with God, 
And he's doing that as with Scripture as the basis. So look, we think about, when we think about God's re- will being revealed to us through prayerfully searching out Scripture. Psalm 119, verse 25. Psalmist here says, My soul cleaveth unto the dust. Quicken thou me according to thy word. I have declared my ways, and thou heardest me. Teach me thy statutes. Make me to understand the way of thy precepts. So shall I talk of thy wondrous works. My soul melteth for heaviness. Strengthen thou me according to thy word. Remove from me the way of lying, and grant me thy law graciously. I have chosen the way of truth. Thy judgments have I laid before me. I have stuck unto thy testimonies, O Lord. Put me not to shame. I will run the way of thy commandments when thou shalt enlarge my heart. Now we could go, well really, we could use this whole psalm and, and uh, illustrate this point. Uh, start in verse 65. Thou hast dealt well with thy servant, O Lord, according to thy word. Teach me good judgment and knowledge, for I have believed thy commandments. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now have I kept thy word. Thou art good and doest good. Teach me thy statutes. The proud have forged a lie against me, but I will keep thy precepts with my whole heart. Their heart is as fat as grease, but I delight in thy law. It is good for me that I've been afflicted, that I might learn thy statutes. The law of thy mouth is better unto me than thousands of gold and silver. You see, the psalmist here is prayerfully, prayerfully seeking God and God's answers through the Scriptures here. It was good for me to be afflicted. Why? Because I needed to learn your statutes. That's why. That's just another way of saying that His affliction was an opportunity for him to draw close to the Lord. As we're waiting for God in the midst of affliction, in the midst of crises, in the midst of difficulties, one of the things that that would require, one of the things that should be going on here, is a regular, prayerful searching out of the Scriptures. Now, if we're talking about something that's outside of our control, we're coming to the Scriptures looking for comfort. But if we're thinking about a decision, you know, a decision where you need answers, then we're coming to the Scriptures and we're looking for wisdom. Lord, lead me here. Lead me here. So a commitment to wait on God and His providential answers, a commitment to search the Scriptures. Number three, waiting on God is the commitment to God that we will not act until He gives answers or gives light. Waiting is the commitment that we will not act until we receive a word from the Lord. Again, that's hard. That's difficult. Look in Romans 14. I think you guys have been here uh, in what Brother Brady's been preaching recently. Romans 14... Romans 14, the last part of verse 23, For whatsoever is not of faith is sin. For whatsoever is not of faith is sin. 
You know what that means? That means whenever we're waiting on the Lord, when we're seeking to make a decision in our life, and we're kind of up in the air as to whether or not this is what God would have me to do. Now, there are some things that are neutral. What I mean by that is you could go a couple of different ways and it wouldn't be a sin. It wouldn't be a violation of God's word. It wouldn't be a violation of God's will. But there are some things that are not. And what Romans 14, 23, the last, this principle at the, at the end here, uh, this is talking about in, in matters of liberty and matters of conscience. But when we get ready to make a decision and we're not entirely sure, there's a possibility in our minds that this might not be what God would have us to do, but we go ahead and make it anyway. Whether it's a violation of Scripture or not, that's a sin. If we're willing to ignore God... If we're willing to say, it could be a sin, maybe it's not. The truth is, I don't care. I'm ready to get this pressure off and move forward. That's a sin. It's not done in faith. You can't do it by saying, I'm trusting that this is what God would have me to do. And so many times when we're waiting, we're seeking to trust the Lord in difficult times, we're waiting we simply hurry up and make a rash decision that will relieve the pressures that accompany those unresolved issues in life. This used to happen all the time. This is a smaller scale example, but this used to happen all the time whenever I was uh, working at um, Northeast Mississippi Community College as a counselor. What I did more than anything was just help people find majors. And so they would come in and um, they would say, typically, they would say, I need to change my major, and I'd say, okay. And they said, well, I say, okay, what do, you, what do you want to do? And they would come up with something. And I would say, well, tell me about that. Why? Well, just because I don't want to do this. That's why. I said, well, have you thought about it? No, not really. No. I thought I wanted to do business, but I think maybe now, and I'm just pulling this out of the hat, I want to do physical therapy. Oh, physical therapy? Are you good in science? No, no, not good in science. You good in math? No, not good in math. Well, physical therapy is probably not what you need to be doing. This is a rash decision. You want to get the pressure off. You want to be able to go home and tell mom and dad that now you've got this new major, but the truth is you're going to be back in my office in two weeks, and you're going to change it again when you realize you can't pass A&P or whatever. This idea of get the pressure off, but we're really just kicking 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 the can down the road a little bit and compounding it because we end up making foolish decisions that put more pressure on top of the pressure that was actually there. So waiting, making sure that we're moving forward in faith. You know, that really is, uh, whenever we think about how to do that, that really is one of the areas where the body of Christ is a tremendous blessing. In a multitude of counselors, there's wisdom. You know, God's never called you to be a loner. It's, it, it, is, it, is, um, it is not a good sign if you are an individual who never asks people for help or advice or never runs, you, you never run your thoughts by people before you make decisions. That is not a good sign. It's not a good sign if you think you're the smartest person in the room. It's not. Because the truth is, we are all ignorant, just in different areas. Okay? And, and if we're really strong in an area, and that's where we tend to park it, 
And sometimes we can be blind to the fact that that's not the way it kind of works over here. One of the biggest blessings of my life, and I still do it, we did it a whole lot, we did it all the time whenever Isaac was at Ripley, was to just be able to run decision-making thoughts by him. And we, we, we still do that today. And I used to say, you know, I, when I think I have a bright idea... I talk to Isaac about it so he can help me get all the stupid out before I actually try to execute it. <laughs> yeah. You ever done you ever done something where you thought, man, I've thought about this. This is I don't know. I don't know. Well, how could it go wrong? And you do it and you think, I was not expecting this. <laughs> I did not see this coming. Well, you may not have, but somebody else probably would if you would have taken the time to go and try to seek wisdom. We need one another. We really do. And what better place to go? What better place to go than the body of Christ that you've been joined to, where people have covenanted to love you and to walk with you, and, and they're committed to your growth, and, 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 and hopefully you're committed to their growth. And so we can be open and vulnerable, and we don't have to worry about looking silly. Part of trusting in God is trusting in His provisions. And brothers and sisters, one of the major provisions the Lord has given you is the body that you're a part of right here. Your pastors, okay? your brothers and sisters, those are provisions from the risen Christ. Do you realize that in this body, according to Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 7, in this body you have gifts that have been given by grace for your edification and growth. We have a tremendous resource. And part of trusting God is trusting the resources He's given us and the provisions He's given us. Okay, so waiting on God. Those three categories, we're waiting for a providential answer. We're waiting for His answers to be revealed in Scripture. We're waiting... Until God gives us that before we act. And so now the question is, if we get a little more specific, what does this require? What needs to be going on while we're waiting? Does it just mean we twiddle our thumbs waiting for this stuff to happen? Let me give you a few things. Number one, this is not going to be a surprise. Waiting on God requires an ongoing study, understanding, and application of Scripture. Matthew 4, 4, man shall not live by bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong to God, but those things which he has revealed to us and to our children, he's doing that so that we might walk in them, that we might do them. So the scriptures are given to us for a very practical purpose. And so not only are we reading, but we're making sure that we understand and we're making sure we're seeking to apply the Scriptures. In my experience, you want to know what the uh, number one hindrance to ongoing Bible reading is? And this is a common struggle. People um, struggle with consistency in their Bible readings. But in my experience in helping people in that, you want to know what the number one problem is with inconsistency? People don't understand what they're reading and they're wondering why they don't get excited about it the next time. Now that happens for a couple of different reasons. Sometimes it's because people think that 
they are commanded to digest uh, an entire chapter a day in 10 minutes. And you don't read any other book that way. Right? Sometimes we, you know, the, the, uh, the go-to 10 to 15 minute devotional. If that's all you have, that's fine. That's all you have. But it may be that you don't need to try to digest 21 verses in 15 minutes. Again, you didn't approach any other book that way. Anybody, try to, anybody ever try to learn calculus by coming to the family table? This is an old J. Vernon McGee illustration. Go into the family table in the morning, and Daddy pulls out the calculus book and reads for 15 minutes and then puts it away, and then you're set for the day? No. You, you didn't do that. You didn't do that with algebra. You didn't do that with math. You didn't do that with anything else. But for some reason, we think that's the way it's supposed to work with Scripture. Well, Scripture is a divine book, and Scripture is a special book. But sometimes we miss the fact that Scripture is an actual book. There's real information here that you need to know and understand. And you access the blessings of Scripture by understanding what's there. And we understand Obviously, that the Scripture has to give us enlightenment, okay? give us the spiritual understanding of what's here, but that spiritual understanding is not going to exceed your understanding of the information that's in the book. You understand what I mean when I say that? So, for example, if you're trying to read the book of Habakkuk and you don't take the time to figure out that in some of the pieces God's speaking and in some of the pieces Habakkuk's speaking, but you read it like it's Paul writing an epistle, you're not going to understand that book. Okay? It doesn't take a genius to figure that part out. So, study, study, taking the time to dig in and actually understand what is Scripture saying and what is it calling me to do. Say a lot more about that, but we're going to move on for time's sake. Secondly, waiting on God requires ongoing fellowship and communion with God. So this is not just a mental exercise. This is not just, um, you know, Lord, you're the answer man, and I'm just waiting on the answer. This is, Lord, I love you. I am seeking your face. I am seeking communion with you. It's this Psalm 27, 7 through 9. You've said to me, seek your face, and your face I will seek. It's ongoing fellowship and communion with the Lord. Again, it's an opportunity for us to draw close to Him. You realize that the reason that God saved you is so that you would commune with Him and that He could commune with you? Okay. We've been chosen in Him. We've been predestined under the adoption of sons through Christ. All of that so that we might be holy and blameless. We're talking about Ephesians 1 at this point. Before Him in love. Sometimes we can miss this, but that little phrase, before Him in love, means face to face with Him in love. God elected you because He wanted you to have fellowship with Him face to face. God predestined you. God's interested in holiness in your life. And all that is moving to an end. And that end is face to face fellowship. Isn't that a beautiful reality? And God is going to use these difficulties, trials, and this cultivation of trust as a means to that. So it's ongoing... Study. It's an ongoing communion. It's an ongoing 
trust, now that might seem kind of strange since we're talking about trust, but it's an ongoing trust. You know trust has to have some substance. I've said this a lot, so you may have heard me say this before, but more than one time I've talked to people who are going through difficult times and I ask, what are you thinking about? What are you meditating on? And they're meditating on the verse, you know, at what time I am afraid, I will trust in him. Okay? At what time I am afraid, I will trust in you. At what time I am afraid, I will trust in you. I said, it's just not working. It's not working. I keep saying that verse to myself again and again and again and again, and it's not working. And the reality is, that verse is the game plan. That's not what David was quoting to himself whenever he was afraid. The question has to be, What is it that you're trusting God to do? Who is it that you're trusting God to be? Trust has to have substance. It's not just a mind trick. It's not just uh, uh, something that you will yourself to do into nothingness. There has to be something behind what you're trusting. So it would be like me saying to you, some of you know me, some of you don't. Those of you who don't know me, it would be like me saying to you, oh, you can trust me. You can trust me. Let me hold your wallet for the weekend. You can trust me. And you would say, I don't even know you. Now, some of you might say, sure, I trust Lewis. I know he's not going to take my money, and you might give me your wallet. I hope you don't, but you might. I wouldn't do anything with it, I don't think. But the truth is, you're not going to do that with anybody that you don't know. And so often we think about trusting God in some sort of a separate category. Well, what are we going to trust about God? Well, we've got to trust that he's merciful. So I'm trusting in his mercy. I'm going to trust in His purposes. God has a greater purpose than what I can see right now into this, but I know that this will end in my good and His glory. I can trust that about God. Now, sometimes we want to trust that this is not going to hurt. But you know what one of the problems is, one of the real difficulties when it comes to trying to walk by faith? We are constantly tempted to hope in what God has not guaranteed. We just place our hopes in all these areas that God has never guaranteed And then our faith, as it were, gets upended because we placed it somewhere it never should have been. We must place our trust and our hopes in areas where God has spoken and promised. And then last, if we're going to wait on the Lord, that's going to require endurance or patience. It's going to require endurance or patience. Do not grow weary in well-doing. We mentioned this last night, but it's worth mentioning again. When you're going through a trial, it's, it's easy enough to be patient on day two. It's another ball game on month five. Right? Endurance. Very, very difficult. And so as we, as we end here, I want to give six practical definitions about patience that hopefully will be helpful. I didn't come up with these. It's by a man named Lou Priolo. He's developed these practical definitions of patience. I think they're very helpful. Uh, again, if you're trying to write and you can't get all these down, I'm happy to email it to you. So number one, what does it mean to be patient? Well, patience is the ability to accept a difficult situation from the Lord without accusing Him of wrongdoing or giving Him a deadline to remove it. 
Patience is the ability to accept a difficult situation. Sometimes that can be the hardest thing. Just accepting what God has allowed. That this has happened and it's not going away. But then without giving him a deadline, usually that's the bigger struggle. Number two, patience is the ability, while experiencing physical or mental distress, to keep one's emotions, that is grief, fear, and anger, from developing into sinful thoughts, words, attitudes, or actions, especially toward God and others. It's easy to get grumpy when you're suffering, isn't it? Yeah. It's easy for people, for you to begin to view people in a very cynical way. Nobody understands. How could people say such trite things? How could people say such silly things? And you know, usually the answer to that is, it's because they love you and they're very clumsy but they're doing the best they can. But we tend to spin that in our minds and take personal offense, don't we? Number three, patience is the ability to endure tribulation without resorting to any sinful means of deliverance. Endurance here. The ability to endure tribulation without resorting to any sinful means of of deliverance. Substance abuse, right? any kind of refuge, you know, addictions, it's just a false refuge. Now, there's, there's complexities and difficulties that go along with breaking that, but at its root, it's seeking relief from something or someone aside from God. We do this all the time. We do this with... Again, sometimes it's with substance abuse, sometimes it's with physical pleasures, sometimes it's with food, sometimes it's with me time, sometimes it's with all kinds of things. Number four, patience is the ability to endure suffering while continuing to acknowledge and be thankful for God's sovereignty, justice, wisdom, love, and goodness. It's hard to be thankful while we're suffering, isn't it? But the truth is, when you're suffering and when I'm suffering, God is just as merciful as He was the day before. God's blessings are still entering into our lives, just like they were the day before. Now, there's, some, there's a painful or a difficult circumstance that's accompanying those, accompanying those blessings, but that doesn't negate the fact that God is continuing to be God and He's fathering us just like He always has. Patience will acknowledge that. Number five, patience is the ability to keep a biblical perspective about one's troubles by not magnifying a tolerable trial so that it appears to be intolerable in the individual's mind. Now that's a pretty convicting one, isn't it? All these are convicting, but that's one. Sometimes we can really blow things way out of proportion. We can take a trial that is tolerable and we can build it up and blow it up in our mind as if we can't handle it. You've probably seen that more in other people than you have in yourself, but we all do it. And then last, patience 
is the ability to rejoice in the assurance that one's present distress will produce godly character, which is of great value, not only in this life, but also in the next. Not only in this life, but also in the next. That's just, God is up to something here. I don't know what He's doing, but I know He's doing something good. And I know that He's conforming me to the image of His Son. And this pressure, this trial, this difficulty is leading to that. It doesn't mean that it's not hard. It doesn't mean that we say, I'm too blessed to be stressed. You know, the Bible really doesn't know anything about that. The psalmists have, have no idea about what it means to be too blessed to be stressed. Jesus has no idea about what it means to be too blessed to be stressed. Check out Gethsemane. Somebody should have come to him and let him know, right? Except that's just a silly phrase that we use. I say we use. I don't know if you use it or not, but some people use it. We live in a fallen world, and sometimes that fallen world falls on us, doesn't it? And we go through all kinds of difficulties. And this, I hope you understand, these definitions of patience are supposed to help push us and nudge us in the right direction. If you're thinking, man, I didn't hit any of those, well, join the club, right? The point is not that you're perfect in all these things. The point is we're trying to realign our hearts and minds through Scripture to walk through difficulties in a way that is more informed by Scripture. And so waiting on God, it's going to require endurance. It's going to require patience. First Thessalonians, First Thessalonians 1 tells us that hope really is the fuel for patience. Hope that God is at work. Hope that there's a purpose in this. And so God is using not only in Habakkuk and, and, and with uh, Habakkuk's heart, but in our lives and in our hearts, God is using the pressures, the trials, the crises of life to produce in us an appreciation for the things that matter to Him. We begin to value the things that He values. You know what that's called? It's called worship. You know, worship is just a value statement. The Old English spelling is worship, W-O-R-T-H, right? When we begin to value more the things that God values, we begin to worship God in a more acceptable way. And so God is going to use trials. He's going to use our coming to Him and seeking to draw near to Him in that way. And He's going to use our periods of waiting on Him to produce that in us. Let's pray. Father, again, we we thank you for your word. Lord, you've revealed things here that we would have never known otherwise. Uh, Father, we also, in light of what your word tells us, uh, Lord, we thank you for the difficulties that you send into our life. We don't mean that in some romanticized way. We don't mean that in a sense that we enjoy the pain and we enjoy the heartache. We don't even mean that we would choose to go through many of those things again were we to have the choice. But what we do mean is that we thank you that you can take some of the most difficult, ugly periods of our life and produce such wonderful Christ-like fruit in the lives of your people 
in a way that we could have never done all by ourselves. You are God, and we belong to you, and we love you, and we pray that you would bless us to trust that you love us too. In Jesus' name, amen.